Well, let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, the ushers are moving through the aisle now, you can get, get one from them. I always think what it must have been like for John the Beloved, the writer of this letter, when he was the last one left. You know, you can imagine at the end of Revelation when he says, even so, he's read all these awful things that are going to happen, but he says, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Be not reunited with all of his close friends, loved ones that went before him. Well, John is desiring that we would be there too, and that we would grow closer and go deeper with Jesus while we're still here. And so John has been laying out three tests that will assure us of our salvation so that we would go deeper with Jesus, that we wouldn't be wrestling all the time with whether or not we're saved, but instead with that assurance of salvation, we would just pursue Him and and go deeper with Him. And so he gave the moral test, that obedience test, and then the love test, loving one another. And now last week, John began laying out the third test, which is the truth test. And he did so by explaining that there are those who claim to know the Lord, but they have never embraced the full counsel of God. Born-again believers know there is a difference between the truth and a lie. And because the Holy Spirit lives inside of them, they embrace the truth. But it does leave us with a question, if this is going to assure us of our salvation. Since we're all, all Christians are still growing in truth, and since none of us are perfect in our grasp of the truth yet, what must someone believe to be a genuine believer? Where's the line? Well, John addresses that beginning in verse 22. So we're going to read in verse 18, and then we'll pick up our study in verse 22. In verse 18, John says, little children, it is the last time, a last hour kind of time. We're in the last days already. And as you have heard that the the Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. We're in that last hour kind of time. They, these Antichrists, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They were in the church, they originated there, but they didn't stay there. They never embraced the teaching of the apostles. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that it might be known or revealed that they were not all of us. In other words, that none of them, you know, had embraced the truth. They weren't believers. Now, in contrast to them, he says, verse 20, but you, you who are genuine believers, you have an unction, an anointing from the Holy One. Jesus has given you His Spirit. And because of that, you know all things. You've embraced the truth of God. So he says, I have not written unto you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Now here it goes. So where's the line? Verse 22. Who is a liar? But he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same does not have the Father. But he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, even eternal life. So John starts off, he says, who is a liar, but it should be the liar. He's thinking of a specific individual, the individual that is claiming to be a believer but isn't. John has been using this word liar from the beginning of his letter, 1 John 1, 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And 1 John 1, 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 1 John 2, 4. He that says, I know him 
but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So this word liar, John has been using it to describe the person who claims to be a believer, but they're not right with the Lord. In this case, now John is addressing who is the liar in regards to what they believe. And this is a great question. How can I know for sure I'm not someone who's a phony? How many of you ever here have wondered that? Probably quite a few of you. How many of you here have experienced the enemy telling you you're a phony? Well, we want to we deal with that. We don't want that to be a question anymore. And so John says, how can you know? How can I know for sure I'm not the liar? I'm not someone who has an antichrist mindset while thinking I'm following Jesus. How do I know that I'm a genuine believer when it comes to the subject of truth? Well, John gives us two definitions of the liar. He says, number one, who is a liar? He says, but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. Or the word but means if not. Who is a liar if not this person? Who's the person? The person who is denying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that you've denied Christ in the past or rejected Christ in the past. That means you're lost forever. That's not his point. Here the word, it's, it's a continual rejection. It means the one who's in the habit of disregarding or refusing to agree or not consenting to the fact that Jesus is the Christ or literally continually exists as, always has been the Christ. Now what's the Christ? Well, that's the word for Messiah, the anointed one of God. When I, I did a, a series on the cults last year, and we went over this important truth of the person of Jesus Christ in great detail, and, and we're going to, we can't cover all that in one morning, that's why I did a series. So if you want more information on what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is and where ideas are out there that fall short of that, you can listen to that series, and I encourage you to do so. But to try to summarize this morning as best as possible, the point is, is that Jesus was a real person just like you and me. I don't get to make him what I want him to be. I don't get to fashion or shape a Jesus after me or, or the way that I think he's supposed to be or the way I want him to be. He was a literal real person. And so to mess with who Jesus is would make him a different person. Jesus is who he is. So who is Jesus? Well, he's the Messiah, it says here. He is God in the flesh, the perfect sinless lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins, then rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, and he is coming back to rule and to reign. Now, as I said all those things, you might be thinking, I'm not sure what some of those things mean. That's okay. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm still learning what some of those things mean. Does that mean I'm not saved? That's not what John's saying. John is saying that the person who is in the habit of rejecting those things, that person fits the definition of the liar. The liar has resisted learning what the Scriptures say about Jesus, or they've refused to consent or agree with what they learn in the Scriptures about Jesus. They'll hear a teaching or they'll read their Bible and they'll go, nope, that's not my Jesus. Instead, when they do that, they create. The liar creates a Jesus to suit themselves. And the Jesus that the liar follows is therefore a figment of their own imagination. Even if parts of their imaginary Jesus resemble things the Bible says about Jesus, it's not Jesus. We had a 
kind of a disturbing but also semi-comical incident this week where in the span of about two, two or three hours, I got text messages from quite a few of our leaders. And they're saying, Will, is this, is this you? I got this text message claiming to be from you asking me to go buy Apple gift cards for women who have cancer in the hospital. And I was like, first off, you know I would never do that. And they're like, yeah, that's what I thought. I'm like, secondly, it's not my number. This is a scam. It came from a weird number. I'm like, yeah, that's what we thought. Wanted to let you know. What a weird thing to think that someone out there is impersonating you. Jesus, he is who he is. You know, you don't get to shape him after you want. You don't get to scam people or scam yourself. He is who he is. And to resist learning what the scriptures say about him or refuse to consent to what the scriptures teach us about him, well, then it's not the real Jesus. And see, this is the first truth problem for the one who is the liar. It's not just that they get Jesus wrong. It's that they regularly reject some part of who the real Jesus is or what the real Jesus did as it is described in the Bible. People throughout history have constructed entire religions around a made-up Jesus. We go into this, I went into this when I went through the cult series. I talked about Gnosticism. And John is writing certainly with the Gnostics in mind. You see, the Gnostics were the first Christian cult, and they taught that Jesus was just a man, that he was a regular old human being, he wasn't God the Son, and that at his baptism, a Christ consciousness, some kind of spirit of Christ from heaven rested upon him and was with him, enabled him to do miracles and say interesting things, and then when he died on the cross, the Christ consciousness left him, and he died a regular man just like you and I would die. The Gnostics taught that Jesus is not God the Son who has existed from all eternity, but instead Jesus is just one of many created beings who have become Messiah-like creatures on earth. Therefore, since he was just a man, the cross didn't really atone for all sin. And therefore, we must do certain works to attain salvation from God to take care of Jesus, what Jesus could not do because he was just a man. John's thinking about those guys when he writes these words, but they apply throughout the centuries to any group or individual that rejects the biblical account of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And so I ask you this morning, how do you respond when you read from the Bible about the very real person known as Jesus of Nazareth? How do you respond? How do you respond when you're taught from the Bible about the very real person known as Jesus of Nazareth? You know, do you hear a teaching about the deity of Christ or the, the absolute atonement of the cross, and do you go, wow, I don't believe that? Do you refuse to bend the knee to how God describes himself to us? Do you reject parts of the Bible or resist parts of what the Bible says about Jesus and what he did for us? Have you constructed a different Jesus that fits into your idea of God or salvation? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, you are the liar. That's what John says, you're the liar. Because when someone is spiritually reborn and the Holy Spirit now lives inside of them, they have a desire to embrace the truth because he's the one who wrote the book. He is the spirit of truth. We have a desire when we're born again and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us to grow in knowing the real Jesus as he has revealed himself to us through his word. Now, there's a second truth problem for the one who is the liar. 
Number one, they reject the person or resist or refuse to consent to the Bible's definition of who Jesus is. But secondly, John says this, he is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. This person, we want to define who the person that's opposed to Christ or who's supplanting Christ by changing who he is. Who is that person? Well, he says it's the person that's denying the Father and the Son. This word deny, it's the same exact phrasing. The person who is in the habit of disregarding, refusing to agree, or not consenting to this concept of the Father and the Son. In other words, they are regularly doing that as it concerns the unique relationship that exists between the first and the second members of the Godhead. There is a unique relationship that Jesus and the Father have. In Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, I'm going to give you a blitz of verses here. You can take notes and look it up later, but in Mark 1, 9 through 11, it says, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, John did, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Jesus. And there came a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That never happened in my baptism. In Matthew 17, 5, we see another unique incident of the Father speaking about Jesus. When Jesus is transfigured on the mountaintop, Peter, he sees Jesus glorified, and he just starts going. He's like, this is great. We should set up camp here. And he's just going off on this spiel, and the Lord interrupts him. The Bible says in verse 5 of Matthew 17, while he yet spoke, while Peter was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice came out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Be quiet, Peter. You're not the one that needs to be talking right now. Listen to him. He's different than you. And then in John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28, Jesus Right before the cross, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. I mean, that's what his heart was crying out for in the sense he didn't want to have to go through all that. But then he says this, but for this cause, I came unto this hour. It's the whole reason I came. Their whole idea of crucifixion was not an exciting idea, but at the same time, he's like, this is my purpose. This is why I stepped into the world. This is why I took on flesh. So he says, Father, glorify your name. Let's do this. And then the Father, there came a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. I can tell you this, I've made some important decisions in my life. I've had some cool God moments in my life, but they've never been accompanied by, Will, I'm going to glorify your name and do it again. Never, because I'm not the same as Jesus. Jesus described his relationship with the Father as unique in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world, he gave his what? Only begotten son. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then Jesus in John chapter 5, verses 19 through 27, gives this amazing section he says these words because the Jewish leaders sought to kill him because he had claimed he was equal with the Father. Well, then answered Jesus unto them. They want to kill him because he claimed to be equal with the Father. This is Jesus' explanation of that claim. 
He said, verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son could do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For what things soever he does, these also does the Son likewise. I don't do anything unless my dad tells me to do it, because the things my dad does, that's what I do. I do everything my dad does, because I'm just like him. For the Father loves the Son, and he shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom He will. As the Father can bring anybody back to life He wants, the Son can do the same thing. For the Father judges no man, but He has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as, in the same way, as they honor the Father. He that does not honor the Son does not honor the Father which sent Him. It's a heavy statement. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my word and believes on him that sent me, the Father, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. Lord, if you're listening to my words, just like listening to his, because we're God. The Father and the Son are both equal. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Jesus said, The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. The incarnate Word of God, Jesus, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, he's God. He has life in and of himself. I'm alive, but I don't have life in and of myself. I contributed some DNA, but I didn't have the ability to make some, a child as the the egg and the things were coming together to make them a living soul. But God has life in himself. There is only one begotten Son of God. Jesus is unique in that he is just like his Father. He is God in every way. Jesus is not a lesser deity. He has coexisted with his Father for all eternity. And you know, that's truly, you say, well, I, that's so hard to understand. I, like I hear people sometimes are like, well, Trinity is not in the Bible. There's a lot of words I use that aren't in the Bible to describe things that are in the Bible. There's nothing wrong with creating a term to describe something that's in the Bible just because the Bible doesn't use that word. No one's claiming that the word the Trinity is in the Bible, but certainly the idea is taught everywhere in the Scripture. The very concept that God is love requires there to be more than one member of the Godhead. The only way that God's claim to be love, to be love, can be legitimate is that there's more than one person in the Godhead. Or God cannot be love because there would be no object to love prior to creation. And isn't it interesting that so frequently the Father says about Jesus, this is my beloved Son. It's like he wants us to understand that. Jesus constantly talks about how his father loves him. Their relationship has existed for all eternity, and that makes it unique from our relationship with God. When you and I put our faith in Jesus, we put our faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection for our sin, God raises us up to the position of adopted sons, right? I have all the rights and privileges that Jesus has, but I am intrinsically still different than Jesus. I'm a created being. He's not. I needed to be redeemed. He didn't. I have a past where I was out of fellowship with the Father. No matter how early I came to faith in Christ, that has never been the case with Jesus. 
And so John says that a second truth problem for the liar is that they reject this unique relationship. They reject the idea that there's more than one person in the Godhead. They reject that Christ is fully God from all eternity and then became fully man in his incarnation. Now, why is that a problem? Well, the problem with rejecting this truth is that you can't have a right relationship with the Father if you refuse to acknowledge the special relationship Jesus has with the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. He says, whosoever denies the Son, the same does not have the Father. They're a package deal. Whosoever denies the Son, that's the, the person of verse 22, the liar, the person who denies the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, denies the relationship that, that Jesus has with the Father, the person who's habitually in the, he's there in the habit of rejecting that, not consenting to it, resisting it, well, he says the same person doesn't have the Father. The word to have, it means they do not belong to or they do not possess. You don't have a relationship with the Father. If I profess to be in a right relationship with God, but I reject the biblical teaching of who Jesus is, John says, I'm the liar. I'm the liar. There is no relationship with the Father without having one with the Son. And isn't that what Jesus told us? John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to who? The Father. But by who? Me. So I, I believe in God, or I follow the Lord, I follow the God of the Bible, but, you know, Jesus, he's just a guy. Well, you don't know the God of the Bible then. Well, you know, I, I'm a believer, I follow the Lord, but Jesus, he's not the Messiah, or Jesus, he's not, he's not the King of Kings, he's not the Savior. Well, then you're the liar. You don't know the Lord, because the only way to know the Father is through the Son. Now, in contrast to the liar, if I am holding fast to what the Scriptures say about Jesus, well, then I have a wonderful, wonderful assurance. John goes on to say, but in contrast to the liar, he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Again, a package deal. Now, anybody here have a Bible where those words are in italics? I'm the only one using the old King James here. Amen, brother. I'm with you. Sister? There we go. It's my sister over there. If you have an old King James Bible, these words, next words, are in italics. Usually, in a Bible, and, and when you see italics in a Bible, it indicates those words weren't in the original manuscript. In this case, however, that's not true. The KJV translators, they put italics here to signify that some of the other English translations that were written at that time, the 16th century, they didn't contain these words. So they were like, well, ours is going to have them and theirs won't, so why don't we just put it in italics to, they actually wrote it in smaller font, but in italics is how it ended up to kind of signify that there were a few other translations during that time period that didn't include these words. However, these words are in the majority of the manuscripts and the oldest of manuscripts, so much so that all modern translations include these words. In fact, the New King James doesn't even put them in italics. So, it's in the Bible. So, John says, he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. The word to acknowledge, again, it's about a, a habit. It means the one who is habitually saying what the same things that the Scripture says about Jesus. To acknowledge, it means to say the same thing. 
to say the same thing that the Scriptures say about Jesus. So if you're professing the same things about Jesus that we find in the Scriptures, well, then that's how you can assure yourself that you're saved. That's how you can know that you're in a right relationship with Jesus and therefore in a right relationship with the Father. And you know what? That's exactly what Jesus promised would be the case. In John chapter 14, verse 23, after he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. In John 14, 23, Jesus says, if any man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Frequently, I'll be asked by Christians that say, well, you know, Jesus is in my heart, but then it says the Holy Spirit's in my heart, so who's in my heart? Well, it gets crowded in there because the Father's there too. They're all there. It's a package deal. There's no separation. Jesus says we will come and make our abode with him. We will come and be with them. The Spirit of God, we know he comes and lives inside of us from other scriptures. So the full Godhead is dwelling in our hearts. He makes his home in our heart. Isn't that an awesome promise? You see, the enemy often wants us to think, well, Jesus might like you, but the Father just kind of puts up with you. Like, you ever heard that idea? Jesus is nice, but the Father's kind of an angry guy. There's no evidence for that in the Scripture. Yeah, but what about all the things in the Old Testament? Some of those things are Jesus. Come on Sunday nights and we'll talk about that. Some of those things are clearly Jesus. The Bible tells us that God is a spirit. No man has seen him at any time. So who's the guy walking around with Abraham and talking about judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and bringing judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah? That's Jesus. It's not the Father. So these ideas, well, the Father's the angry guy, and Jesus is kind of like, okay, Dad, you know, I, I know Will's a jerk, but I died for him, and you agreed, fine. Let him in. Just, I don't want to see him. No. The same relationship you have with Jesus, you have that relationship with the Father and, of course, the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus, when he was praying for those who had come to believe the word of the apostles, you and me, he was praying for you and me. His prayer was this for us. John 17, 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. Jesus' prayer and desire is just like you and me have this close relationship, Dad, that they would have that too, that we'd all be united in that relationship. And that relationship with the Godhead, it begins the moment we get saved. You don't ever have to do anything to achieve it. You and I enter into that relationship with each member of the Godhead the moment we're born again. And isn't knowing God the pinnacle of being a Christian? It is. There's a theme in Scripture. You've probably heard me say it before. If you're new, you'll hear it now. David, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, he said, one thing have I desired of the Lord. That will I seek after. What was it? This is my one necessary thing, the thing that I'm going for at all costs, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. I want to know him. I want to see him more. I want to know him intimately. 
In the New Testament, we see Jesus is having a meal at Martha and Mary's house, and Martha's busy making the meal, and Mary's sitting down listening to Jesus, and Martha comes out, and he's like, Lord, tell my sister to help me out. We got tons of stuff to get ready. And Jesus says to Martha, he says, Martha, Martha, you're, you got a lot of stuff going on that you're concerned about. But he says, one thing's necessary. Like if we don't, everything's not perfect for dinner tonight, it's okay. One thing's most important, one thing's necessary. And Mary's chosen that better part, and I'm not gonna take it away from her. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, getting to know him. That's the most important thing. And of course, Paul, he comes right out and says it. He says, this one thing I do. One thing, that, word, that phrase once again. This one thing I do. Leaving behind me all those accomplishments and achievements I had as a Pharisee. Leaving all of that behind me, counting them like, like rubbish, trash. He says, I press on to the high prize of my calling in Christ Jesus. What was it? That I may know him, amen. I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I wanna know the one who died for me. I wanna, I wanna see him, I wanna understand him. I wanna go deeper with him. That's the pinnacle of being a Christian. There's nothing greater to achieve. There's no greater revelation. There's no need to join any other group besides the body of Christ. Because once you're in, you have everything you need. And so John tells us in verse 24, the believers, you have acknowledged the Son. You're in that habit of believing the Scriptures and getting to know Jesus better. He says, stay there. Stay there. Look at verse 24. Let that therefore abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. There's an untranslated you all at the beginning of this verse. And it means you guys who, who are acknowledging Jesus, the, the scriptures and what they say about Jesus, you guys who are professing the right things about Jesus, he says, let that therefore. Therefore means in light of what was just said. In other words, in light of where the line is between being the liar and being the legitimate believer. You know where the line is. In light of where that line is, stay where you are, he says. He says, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. This word abide, we're going to see it three times in this verse, and, and it means to make your home, to remain somewhere, to stay somewhere. Let that remain in you. Let that, let, you must make it your home to stay in that which you've heard from the beginning. The beginning of what? The, well, the beginning of your faith in Christ when you first got saved. The truths you embraced when you got saved. John says, stay there. Make that your home. You don't need an upgrade. Dance with the one who brung you. If you do that, you'll be just fine. You'll be just fine because you'll be with the Father and the Son forever. Verse 24, if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, you shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. And John believes that's what is most likely gonna happen for these guys. The word here, if, is a third-class clause, which means it's of greater probability. He expects that to happen. Is it possible it might not? Yes, but he expects people to make the Scriptures their home when they're genuinely born again. That phrase, he says, if that which you have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, if it, if it will be at home in you, you need to make it your home so it can be at home in you. And if it is at home in you, well, he says, you shall also 
continue, same word, be at home in the Son and in the Father. Is it possible for a genuine believer to go off into weird theology? Yes, but it's not likely. And it's, they're not going to stay there if they're a genuine believer. Because believers don't tend to bounce around from one weird theology to the next. They make Jesus and they make the Scriptures their home. And therefore, those truths in the Scriptures make their home in them. Now, that is why you and I must be wise in who we let influence us when it regards learning the Bible. You, you can't just listen to anybody. You need to be wise. I had somebody come up to me today and they said, Pastor Will, what do you know about this church? And I was like, oh, I don't want to speak badly of anybody. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, what do you want to know? I have a friend who's going there and they just started going and what should I tell them? I said, well, they're probably okay. I said, it's a good church. I said, I wouldn't recommend going there. I said, but it's not like they corrupt the gospel or anything. I said, they're probably all right. And she smiled real big because she had some concerns and then we talked about those things. We need to be wise in who we let influence us as it regards learning the Bible. Stick with teachers who let the Bible speak for itself rather than insert themselves or their own ideas into the Bible. Stick with people who teach the Bible. Don't listen to people who are like, now, the Bible says here, who's a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? And then they close their Bible and never open it again and talk for however long they're going to talk. That's using the Bible as sermon fodder, all right? That's the, the group that you send in front of the, the cannons so that the real troops can take out the enemy, Right? It's meaningless to you. It's deep. They don't, you don't value those people because you send them up there to die so the real troops can go take out the cannoneers. That's not what the Bible exists as. It's not our springboard. All right? It's life. I love when watching the Jesus Revolution, you know, Pastor Chuck, you know, this is the Word of God. And it's, it's life. It's not a springboard, it's not where we get our ideas from. I love what God told Jeremiah. He said, I have put my words in your mouth. In other words, it's not about your words about my words. It's about my words. Less of will, more Bible. Always better. Always better. The job of a Bible teacher is to explain what the Bible says, not give you their own ideas. And when you are letting the Scriptures be at home in you, well, then you're going to make your home forever with the Father and the Son. Isn't that an awesome promise? If you are holding fast to these basic truths that you believe when you came to faith in Jesus, you can know that you're saved. You're going to make your home with Jesus and the Father forever. That's God's promise to you. And that promise can't be improved on. Look at verse 25, and I'll wrap it up here. These things have I written unto you, I'm sorry, verse 25. And this is the promise. I said that really like strong too. This is the promise that he has promised us even eternal life. Literally, this is the promise that he has promised us life, the eternal kind. There's all sorts of people out there promising you some kind of life, and it may even sound great. God promises us eternal life, the eternal kind of life. Let me ask you a question. How can somebody improve on eternal life? I've got something to sell you. Life, it's a good life. Really? I've already got eternal life. How can you improve on that? How can you improve on something that's free? 
Well, I know you, you got this thing called salvation that's free, but I've got something better. What? There's nothing that's better than free. How can someone improve on the absolute assurance that you belong to Jesus and the Father? Well, I can give you something that will be better than that. What? You can't. No one can give you something better than that. Anyone claiming to offer you something better than those things is giving you something less than those things. God's benefit package for those who believe can't be improved on. Not by the Gnostics back then and not by any group today. And so when someone claiming to speak for God tells you that what you have in your Bible and what you have in Christ's cross isn't enough for you, that you need something more that only they can give, it's a scam. Because if you're born again, you already have everything you need to get close to God. Nothing needs to be added to that. You just need to keep growing in your knowledge of the Scriptures and building on what you learned when you first got saved. Amen? Life, real life, the abundant life that Jesus promised us, it starts the moment that you get saved and it continues for all eternity. It is already yours. You don't need anything else than anyone's selling. Now, as the team comes up to close us out in worship, just a few challenges to you, something to leave you thinking with. What are you inputting into your mind and into your heart? Is it the Scripture? Is it sound teaching? Does it line up with what the Bible says about Jesus and His unique relationship with His Father? If the answer is yes, then just keep doing that. Because if you're holding fast to those truths, you can rest easy. You belong to Jesus. You have eternal life right now. You have a home with the Son and the Father, and no one can separate you from His love. Amen? Stop listening to the enemy who's beating you up going, oh, you're probably a phony. I love a line in a book I read. It says, sometimes a hypocrite is just someone who's trying to get better. That's a good truth. It's a good truth. Now, you might be saying, Pastor Will, I'm not in the Scripture. I'm not sure how to answer that question. If the answer to the question is in question, well, then maybe that's a reason you're struggling to go deeper with the Lord. Antichrist ideas are often dressed up as Christ ideas. And when they get inside of our heart, it affects how we live. And they cause us to resist the truths of Scripture that empower us to go deeper with Jesus. So if, if that's you, you're like, I'm struggling, and I know I resist truth sometimes. Well, get back into your Bible. Keep it simple and, and believe what it says and let the Lord renew your mind. And then lastly, if you have been resisting what the Scriptures teach about Jesus and His unique relationship to the Father... If you've been adding something else to the gospel, John is telling you you're not right with God. And not being right with the Lord is definitely going to keep you from going deeper with Jesus. And it might even be an indicator that you've never started a relationship with Jesus. So if that's you this morning, stop fighting the Lord. Stop letting your pride get in the way of, well, I think God should be like this. In the Old Testament, they had the first commandment you have no other gods beside me. The second commandment was similar to it. Don't make any image of me. God doesn't want us shaping him because he's the one shaping us. So if you've been shaping him, then repent and then believe the truth and let him do that work in your heart. Let's all stand.
Lord, you know every heart here this morning. You know where we're at, what we're struggling with, or what we've been resisting you on. So Lord, I first pray for my dear brothers and sisters who maybe the enemy just beats them up regularly, constantly brings condemnation to them. You're not saved. You're not going to heaven. You're not forgiven. God doesn't love you. God's through with you. Lord, if if they're yours, then assure their hearts this morning based on this, this scripture, this test that we can look and go, but I do believe, I do believe this, I do believe that, and I want to keep learning that. Well, then, Lord, assure their hearts that that can become that bastion of truth that they can wield, they can take that sword out when the enemy comes at them with the lie and say, no, it is written, it is written. He that acknowledges the Son has the Father and the Son. And Lord, that we can rest in that assurance and go deeper with you. And then, Lord, for anyone here that's been fighting you and fighting the truths of your word or just outright rejecting them, Lord, would you draw them to your side with your bands of loving kindness? That's how you bring us to repentance. Lord, that none of us would leave here today not yielded to you and not right with you. In Jesus' name, amen.